Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Alex Boudelier. Jesse Brown. National politics reporter for the Toronto Star. Alex, today we're going to be talking about this whiplash-inducing news cycle and uh, its discontents. We're going to be talking about Possible Russian fuckery in uh, Canadian politics, and uh, your words, not mine. Just to be <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we're going to be talking about whether or not the Conservative Party leadership race uh, have taken the red pill. It's good to have you here on Canada Land Shortcuts. It's a pleasure. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Ryan Bird, Barbara Timmons, Jim Sellers, Tara Z. Jeff Saint-Pierre, Francois Caron, Terence, and Galen Fick. Galen, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I think having a free and accountable media is an important part of democracy, and you guys do a great job of keeping everyone up to date on what's happening in Canadian media. And Alex, this episode is also brought to you by Tunnel Bear. I don't know how security-minded you are as a reporter. Very. You know? Yeah, you got you got to be. These days, it is important. I think it's probably more likely that stuff is going on than, that it, than, than, than not. And so that's not just for us. I think that there are threats out there for everybody. So if the rise of online mass surveillance makes you uneasy, then perhaps you should check out Tunnel Bear. It is a beautiful app that makes it incredibly easy to add a layer of protection to your computer and mobile devices. 
You just flick on TunnelBear and you enjoy the confidence of knowing that your connection is secured with the strongest encryption available. Your IP address and other identifying information are swapped out with one of TunnelBear's private ISPs, so you keep your location private. And when it comes to privacy and security, TunnelBear walks the talk. They do not record user activity. They have a top-rated privacy policy. It is, again, super simple to use. If you have any questions, you can use their 24-7 free support, and you can use it for free, your first 500 megs of data traffic on TunnelBear, totally free. Go to tunnelbear.com slash CanadaLand to check it out. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. WikiLeaks calling it the biggest story to, to date over secret CIA documents. President Trump unleashing a flurry of tweets this morning accusing former President Obama of spying on him and during the campaign. And learned that the nation's top intelligence officials provided information to President-elect Donald Trump and to President Barack Obama the last FBI week. has just sent a letter to Congress that they have discovered new emails. Clinton campaign chairman practices Aleister Crowley black magic, menstrual blood, semen, breast milk, a form of ritualistic sex magic. You know, my job is to keep an eye on the Canadian media and, and the, the news cycle that I think you are more immersed in, Alex, can be a bit confusing and it's getting more confusing every day, but I think I've got a handle on it. Let me just run through this here. 
My understanding is that like Obama was spying on Trump. Trump was working with the Russians. The Russians were also spying on Trump, you know, with the PP stuff. And they were also spying on Hillary with the emails so they could dump them to Julian Assange, who would then hand them over to Reddit. The FBI was spying on Hillary for Trump, but dumping the the hints that they had to the media to destabilize the election. Uh, but they were also spying on Trump for Obama. And the whole thing was orchestrated by the reverse vampires uh, in collaboration with the Freemasons. Is that an accurate summary? That's a pretty good summary, but you left out the uh, George Soros connections. Fuck. Soros working with the Koch brothers. I forgot all about that aspect of it. It goes way deeper, man. Follow the money. Before we get into the nitty gritty of of what we do here talking about Canadian press, I just feel like we have to like recognize something that's happening. First is that like on the one hand it's impossible to turn away from this like whiplash inducing the daily bombshell revelations, crazy dramatic stuff without really any kind of precedent or map. So on the one hand, it's this great distraction that drowns out a lot of what's happening here. On the other hand, I, I have fatigue. I don't know if one in a thousand people could actually get their facts straight in telling you where this is all at. I've kind of got to this dulled place where I accept that there's truth to a lot of this. I don't think it's crazy conspiracy theory stuff, but I feel like I'm in a, the most convoluted spy novel of all time and I'm bored. And and I, I just want to get your thoughts from somebody who's following this a bit more closely. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a problem if if you and I feel that way, since it's our job to, you know, sit at a computer and pay attention to what's going on and talk to people about about what's going on. You know, if, if we're feeling that way, how do you think, you know, the person who isn't paid to follow the news or paid to report the news feels, you know, how, how much do you think that they're paying attention to? And I think that's the real risk when we talk about burnout related to this, you know, it's not even like a 24-hour news cycle anymore. It's just like a perpetual chaos machine that just spits out information in every direction. And so, you know, I think the real risk there is that, you know, the public ends up turning off completely, or at least partially and not paying attention to what's actually going on. Like, for instance, you know, we all know about the Russian spy sort of allegations and wiretapping allegations and whatever, you know, President Trump tweets, you know, but we may not pay as close attention to massive cuts at the Environmental Protection Agency that is going to mean, you know, real trouble for the Great Lakes and the the efforts to protect them. Or the fact that, you know, the American uh, administration considered uh, seizing an Iranian ship, which is an act of war. I mean, how many people know, you know, those sort of details that get kind of drowned out? I mean, we're talking about war with Iran. This is not an insignificant thing, but it gets drowned out in the just sort of perpetual, constant barrage of, of, of BS. It's baffling and overwhelming. I mean, simultaneously, North Korea and and uh, our saber rattling about their missile testing, and then China. Like, it's, like it's hard to know what's important because when you get the personalities involved, you know, you, you have these tweets from Trump, which either it's just like throwing chum into the water; it's more chaos to try to extract like a signal from the noise. But then I'm just wondering, like, wait a second, like. Isn't this consequential if he doesn't end up having any proof of this? Like, does he get impeached? It feels like the the labor of figuring out the meaning of this information is like more than a full-time job. So yeah, what what hope in hell does your average newsreader have? Well, I mean, that's that's our responsibility though. You know, we have to, it may be painful, it may be a lot of work, it may be a lot of hours, but I think that the news media has uh, uh, an absolute duty to, ensure that we do the best job that we can in sifting through all of this to tell people what really matters. And, you know, it's always been the same that people will decide to pay attention or they won't. But I think that it's, you know, absolutely incumbent on on us, you know, our American cousins, certainly in, in the press gallery down there, but also here in Canada to, 
ensure that you know the narrative and the and the the facts and the importance doesn't get lost in in the sort of constant stream of consciousness. <laughs> How is it affecting you? Like the the great untold story of the Trump victory and this this age that we're living in this moment, I think is the like the psychic aspect of it, the emotional aspect yeah. of it. I feel like that's something that is happening like writ large. Like everybody, I think, is feeling destabilized. And I mean, not everybody has some people are feeling really encouraged and excited. And a lot of people are feeling really scared. It's your job. You can't disengage. I think a lot of people are just like, fuck it. I'm going to go watch Logan. But you professionally must stay on top of this stuff. Um, Me to a certain extent uh, as well, less so the American stuff than you perhaps. But I'm just wondering, like, what what effect it's having on you? Like, uh, you know, is is it like a – an obsessive thing where, where you love your work still, or is it becoming like kind of a, one of those things It's like, uh, this is a professional duty and, and, you know, I'd rather not. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's important to keep it in context. You know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm one reporter at, you know, major newspaper in Canada. You know, I'm not too hard done by, you know, I've got a pretty good, but, but yeah, certainly when I go home at night and, uh, you know, sit down, I'm not, I'm not reading books anymore. I'm not, you know, just vegging out in front of the televisions. I'm, you know, checking the evening edition of the Washington Post, which, you know, I subscribe to in the sort of in the wake of all of this uh, happening. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of invade your personal space uh, quite directly. I mean, this, this sort of omnipresence of the U.S. administration in, in reporters' lives, I think, is 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 something you know something to be careful of because if reporters burn out then the public isn't served right so i i think you know everybody will handle that differently um you know personally i've i've turned off the 24-hour news networks at at work i I now just watch the house of commons feed which is nice and soothing and calm most of the time um (laughs) you know i i try to get away from twitter because you know i just i'll I'll never get any work done and it's not it's at the end of the day it's not my job to report on Washington, it's my job to keep tabs on Ottawa. And, uh, you know, if I'm constantly, you know, jumping between stories about the latest uh, developments with the, the Washington administration, then I'm not serving my readers. Dude, that is the saddest thing I've ever heard. Like after main, <laughs> after mainlining Twitter all day, you like your, your opiate, your sleeping pill is a little CPAC before bed. Hey, look, every, like I said, everybody has their own crutch, right? Some, some turn to drink, some turn to CPAC. All right. Well, let's focus on uh, the, the the local manifestation of mm-hmm. all of these conspiracy theories. Like, I, I, I'll make one final point before we get to this next one, which is just like, I mean, you have to be a real lunatic to think that there's any intentionality. Like, nobody could orchestrate anything of this magnitude in order to make the sheeple. Uh, turn off their political awareness and just accept whatever happens. I, I don't buy that for a second, but I do think that politics is constantly rearranging itself to adapt to whatever the reality is of the day. And now I think it is a viable tactic to sort of heap more misinformation and dramatics and fireworks on top because the effect is that it is uh, no one can discern truth from fiction and people do turn off. So whether that was like the plan from the start, which I don't think it was, I have no doubt is happening right now. Do, do, do you get the sense when some of the stuff gets thrown out there that that's part of the idea? I'm hesitant to ascribe, uh, uh, you know, an intention to anybody. But what, what I will say, I, I think there's something to your point. But I will say that that there are people who can discern truth from fiction. In fact, there's an entire industry of us out there, and we treat it very seriously. Um, and so, the best thing that you could possibly do is to, uh, 
you know, like I said, subscribe to the Washington Post, subscribe to the New York Times, subscribe to, you know, uh, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, the National Post. And, you know, we'll keep trying to do that, you know, to the best of our ability. I think, you know, the, the sort of democratization of, of the journalism platforms has been an amazing thing to watch. But, it, you know, it also carries some risks. I mean, I'm operating in the same you know, sort of sphere now as a conspiracy theorist or a Macedonian teenager pumping out, you know, complete fabrications. So I think, you know, for all the harumphing about legacy media and, you know, the, the MSM bias, which some of your guests like to talk about, we do treat, you know, the facts very carefully and very seriously. And I think people need that in, in times like these. Download Star Touch. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And have you tried the Star Coffee yet? <laughs> saving it. It's it's fantastic. I'm drinking it right now. It's fantastic. I've been awake for 48 hours. As uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence forces have said, um, by Russia to destabilize the U.S. political system, I think that Canadians uh, and indeed other Western countries should be prepared for similar efforts to be directed at us. Uh- okay, so that uh, was... Foreign Affairs Minister and and my member of parliament, Christia Freeland, ominously warning us that Russia may try to destabilize Canada's democracy. Yeah. And and wouldn't you know it, Russia and Russian operatives turn out to be shopping around information that uh, supposedly identifies Freeland's hidden Nazi grandfather, or more specifically, her grandfather who published a Nazi newspaper in Poland. Yeah, and I think I think we should I think we should be very careful in in sort of how we describe this because I, I mean I don't know if if you guys looked into it. Uh, I, I certainly haven't looked into it, but to to just decide that he was a Nazi or a Nazi collaborator based on you know not much. Um, I think uh, I think we should just be very careful. Yeah, no, we we took a cautious approach in looking at this. I think it's pretty much confirmed that he was a Nazi collaborator. I think you can't really be publishing a, a Nazi propaganda vehicle that was seized from a Jewish publisher uh, that you moved across uh, the continent in order to publish it. And, and you, you are to some extent working with, you're collaborating with the Nazis. There's some vague idea that he was also part of the resistance, but, uh, but that there's no proof of that. Um, but to focus on the coverage of this, you have this interesting situation where it was clear to us that, yes, this is obviously being shopped to us for political purposes doesn't mean it's not true. Both things can be true. It's obvious that that uh, Russian interests who, you know, uh, no friend of uh, Christia Freeland's, she, she's actually not allowed to go there, fierce Ukrainian uh, supporter. This is her heritage. And uh, she's been vocal about the politics and, and, and she's banned from Russia. So to talk about the coverage of this. Mm-hmm. We have we have a couple of organizations that I guess to different in different angles took the bait and ran with this. And one is uh, uh, your friend and uh, often uh, Candidate guest Justin Ling writing at Vice, and then uh, Fife. I, I Fife. wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't call him a, I wouldn't call him a friend. I mean I mean we're acquainted, but I appreciate your your diligence to facts <laughs> and uh, accuracy. Yeah, so Justin Ling, uh, Alex Bedelier's uh, greatest adversary, writing for Vice. <laughs> And Fife at the Globe Mail. So, so Ling basically led with the Russians are fucking with us. And Fife went the other way and said, oh, yeah, Christopher Freeland has this uh, – n- uh, not only d- does she have this uh, grandfather who was involved with this Nazi newspaper, but she knew about it for years. What do you make of the disparity in approach that these two journalists took? 
Oh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not the media critic on, on this show, Jesse, but, but I will say that I thought it was very interesting, um, the angle that, that Mr. Ling actually took, which was, you know, I'm, we looked into this. We didn't think it was a story. We didn't run with it. But it's important for, you know, Canadians to know where this information is coming from. Again, I didn't, I didn't look into this. I, I, you know, I've not researched this story. I'm just a, a news consumer on this. So, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm very cautious about casting any aspersions. And, and certainly that, that era of history in Poland and, and Ukraine are not my specialty. I'm a little out of my depth here. But, but I would just say that, that I do think it's novel, the approach that, that Vice took in saying, you know, hey, uh, Christia Freeland's warning that Russia is, uh, you know, interested in uh, disrupting our politics, as they seem to have been doing in the United States, but also in France and Germany and places in, in uh, Western Europe. And, you know, she might be a target. I think that was an interesting way to tell that story. And the other important thing, I think, to note is where that that uh, comment from Minister Freeland came from. She was asked, uh, actually by uh, Bob Fife of the Globe and Mail, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday, he, he sort of prefaced his question by saying, you know, the, the Russians are destabilizing, you know, democracies in the Western world. You know, there's this, you know, story out about your, your grandfather, you know, possibly... Uh, being a Nazi collaborator, do you think that they're out to disrupt the election? So it's not like, you know, Minister Freeland sort of, you know, thought that this might be coming out in the Globe and Mail and, and got out in front of it to say, oh, no, 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 the Russians are just trying to pull the wool over your eyes. She was asked very directly if she's concerned about Russia interfering with our elections. And I think she answered that question rather than addressing the the more contentious one about her, her grandfather's um, alleged collaboration with the Nazis. Right. And then when later Fife directly asked her those questions, she wouldn't answer them either and, and gave that classic line of, I, I would look at where this information is coming from. I'll make a couple points here. First of all, I don't give a damn what her grandfather did or didn't do. I, I, I think that she's responsible for her own behavior. And her own behavior has been to talk about her grandparents uh, in the context of that they were oppressed, that they were fleeing. I think there's some sense that they were victims of the Nazis and that they carried with them the responsibility for Ukrainian nationalism uh, for a free and independent Ukraine. So I think that if you are essentially like that, that first of all, puts that into the fair game category. If you're going to talk about your own political history and your own lineage, then yeah, we, we, we if the story is sort of revisionist, uh, I don't see anything wrong with correcting that. And I do think that if uh, if Fife is right, as uh, and it seems my reading of his story is asserting that, yeah, she did know about this. There are some valid questions there. I also think she protests a little bit too much. This is not destabilizing Canadian democracy, right? This is just a question about how she's represented herself and whether it's accurate or not. Well, hold, but hold on. Hold on. I don't think – she wasn't asked if this is – you know, this single story is – Russia's master plan to disrupt the 2019 election. She was asked if, you know, the Canadian government is concerned about Russia or or other forces, other nation states or other, you know, actors destabilizing uh, elections or attempting to destabilize elections in in Canada. I think that that long before this story, that was something that Ottawa was seized with. You'll recall back in January when the Liberals abandoned their their pledge for electoral reform, one of the mandates the new minister was given was to work with the communication security establishment to, you know, ensure that the electoral system is is safe from interfer- from outside interference. I don't think they quite know how they're going to do that yet, but but that's one of the things that they they're doing. So it's not it's not like this is just this popped up as as if, you know, Vladimir Putin handed the file to the Globe and Mail or something like that. It's, you know, it's it's bigger than this one story. 
I guess so, but this was with with, with reference to it, and like this feels like a conflation to me. Like, uh, of course, we need to do cybersecurity uh, efforts to protect our electoral system, but this is a you know uh, a propagandistic nation like like Russia that ha- that keeps compromising information on their adversaries. You've got a, a identified adversary of Russia, and they're trying to fuck her up. I I mean I I, I can absorb and and reconcile that both things might be true, and I, and I could still be you know concerned and feel that it's newsworthy what her past was. What I find interesting, I mean, isn't it? weird that Vice is the publication that feels like they are doing the liberals' work for them. That was a very sympathetic piece that Justin wrote. Uh, it was interesting to me that he actually named the Russian embassy, like w- without actually naming the source, but like th- th- that's where it, it came from, both that he named it and that he didn't get specific about it. But then he was quoting the same person who happens to be Freeland's uncle, this academic, who Fife also quoted. And Fife's quotes did not portray the same exculpatory message from this uncle as Justin's did. Well, way, way, way down and way down in that Fife piece, there is a there is a quote that says, you know, the guy wouldn't have had uh, editorial control and in fact helped the Ukrainian uh, intelligentsia, you know, through giving them freelance work to keep the you know the cultural industry rolling. Look again, I haven't looked into this story. I'm not trying to make the guy out to be a war hero or anything else. I'm just saying that you know, I, I think I think it was a novel approach from from Vice to say, oh yeah, like this is where the information is coming from. Um, we should be aware of that. And, and I, think, I, I don't think that that negates you know, a story. I don't think that the Russian embassy, if they come across actual news and want it out there for a political purpose, it doesn't mean it's not a story like you're saying. Um, but I, I just find that, that, that Vice's approach in naming it so people can draw their own conclusions, I think is, is a novel one and maybe one to emulate going forward. I think there's a lot of mistrust about the news media and our sources, you know, the, the senior liberal sources that everybody in Ottawa loves to quote all the time. And I, I, you know, I think being honest about where information comes from can only help our credibility when readers who ultimately want to make up their own mind, make up their own mind, you know? So that, that that's all I'm saying. I think I think the the you know without having investigated the story myself, I just think that the the vice approach was was to me the more interesting one. Well, you know what? We don't have to choose. And and uh, I, I take your point actually. Like I feel like I learned more from the Globe piece. There was just more factual information. But maybe there was more factual information as it pertained to the story of the grandfather and of Freeland's history of how she's represented this. Whereas Ling gave us more of a look into where the information came from and why. So you put mm-hmm. those two together, and uh, you know we we we, uh, we don't have to. It's, these are not the days where you pick which newspaper to subscribe to, and we're probably the better off for having read both of them. Uh, you know, absolutely. Diversity is a wonderful thing. And heaven forbid that you should do any media criticism on this media criticism show. Yes, no, absolutely. That's not my job. Alex, this is the time on this program where we take a moment to duly note some things that we believe should be uh, noted duly. I'm going to talk about the um, the anti-M103 protests, uh, which of course were drowned out by the anti-anti-M103 protests. But it was it, uh, there's just like you can't make this shit up that the people who are very, very concerned about maintaining what they perceive as a threat to their right to criticize or even express hate towards Islam used as their rallying cry anthem, waving flag by Kanan, a Somali refugee. It's almost like, it's, it's almost like they're lacking sort of uh, self-awareness. <laughs> or basic intelligence. <laughs> well, let's not go that far. Come on. There is something in that that I feel is like the most beautiful, perfect illustration 
of Canadian multiculturalism. And Kanan on his Twitter account <laughs> seized on this immediately, which is that we want to use the spirit and the creative fruits of multiculturalism and the image of multiculturalism, whether even we know we're doing so, we celebrate this country. We'll even use as like our anthem uh, the fruits of multiculturalism, but we don't actually want to deal with the people who are responsible for that. And I thought about that as I was watching this new ad campaign for for Toronto, Canada's downtown, and how the, you know it, it, it basically is using as selling points for Canada everything that makes the city wonderful from a multicultural view. It, 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 that is brand Canada at this point. Uh, and the disparity between that and this rising anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim sentiment uh, is something that I wanted to duly note. Duly noted. And I, I just would add that one of my favorite stories from that uh, weekend of protests was a story out of Halifax, my favorite city in Canada, where apparently like nobody showed up to protest. Actually, there was like three guys like, where where is everybody? And the, the crowd had protest, the protest showed up, but there was no protest at all. And it was just kind of, it, it made me very homesick for Halifax. <laughs> what do you have for us, Alex? So I'm going to uh, be the stereotypical auto reporter and uh, talk about a parliamentary committee, but it's a, it's actually a really important parliamentary committee. It's the new National Security Committee to oversee Canada's spies. The Liberals actually promised to create one because we, didn't, we never had one. We never had any civilian oversight. We were the only five, five eyes country who didn't have any civilian oversight over their spies, um, which is kind of shocking when you think about what agencies like CSIS and the RCMP and CSE can do. And they did. There's, legi- there's legislation in front of the House right now, uh, but the Liberals are going to re- reject calls to give the committee more power to subpoena witnesses or compel documents t- uh, to be released. And they're also keeping final say over what information the committee gets to both review, that rests with the cabinet minister, and uh, the prime minister ultimately has the authority to say what the committee can report to the public. You know, it's, it's, the committee's been sort of, you know, welcomed because it's some civilian oversight, but there is that sort of tension about how much power they should actually have. The other reason I think it's important and worthy of a duly noted is because the Liberals are actually in the middle of an entire national security review right now. And given the climate uh, of the time, you know, debates about encryption, privacy online, police powers, uh, clashes between CSIS and the federal court, I think this has the potential to be a huge turning point for Canadian, uh, Canadian uh, approaches to terrorism and, and privacy. So, so that's all coming this spring, and it's it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me like we've got precedent for this. Like there is this watchdog with Cirque, is it for 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 CSIS? Uh, yeah, and they're, yeah, they're to- but, toothless but lapdogs. Like the, the I would the, I would I would not say that. But but what I would say is that 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 SIRC can only review CSIS operations after the fact. This is an oversight committee. This, this actually, you know, this committee has the, the, the power to not approve or, 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 you know, deny CSIS operations, but the ability to, to provide some civilian oversight to operations before they happen and as they're happening. So, so I wouldn't call uh, SIRC toothless or a lapdog, but I would say that they're, they're certainly limited in what 
what they can do and, and the change that they can actually affect within within the agency. S- similarly, a CSE has this commissioner who, uh, after the fact, reviews everything and says whether or not it was lawful or not. He said it, uh, once it's not lawful, nothing seems to happen. So I, I, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, some oversight is better than none. I would actually argue that bad oversight is worse than no oversight because it, it gives the impression that, that there, there are checks and balances in place when, in fact, there might not be. We may not agree on the extremity of my critique, but I think you've done a good thing in pointing people's attention to this is very important so uh just just one, just just one all right they, they, all right they, all right, they yeah. did suspend the program that the commissioner found was uh not legal so uh, some, something something did happen yeah fair enough fair enough followed by other uh, controversies but with that specific case and your attention to detail uh notwithstanding that that that, <laughs> that is accurate and uh i will duly note your correction to my duly noted and i will follow uh finally with this duly noted i just want to say there's this cool thing that's happening today as we record it's international women's day and, yeah. uh, you know, yesterday on my feeds, a couple of frequent, uh, commentators were complaining that they were invited to various media panels to debate feminism. September Anderson, who's been on the show before, and also Brenda Kosman, uh, Brenda Kosman saying that she was being invited to some CTV panel, September Anderson to some radio panel. And, you know, these are smart women and they looked into it and they found out who the other panelists were and they were being set up. Like there were like anti-feminist MRA, uh, just like they were being lure, lured into like an ambushy. It seems uh, that they felt that they were being lured into this like horrible confrontation. And uh, I won't comment. I don't know how much transparency there was on the part of the media organizations that were, but they, but they, they rejected these requests. And then they, you know, I just, sometimes social media is a good thing and they're able to say that. And in the old days, you know, nobody could really have any kind of say either you, you had this sort of bargain where either you, you went and did the interview because it's a rare opportunity to actually talk about something important and you accept the terms of how the debate is being framed, or you just disappear and have no voice. And I just think it's really cool that they are showing the strings of this thing in the process and uh, they deserve uh, uh, some duly, duly, duly notation for that. I, I agree. I just did the, the entire concept of debating feminism strikes me as <laughs> kind of bizarre. I mean, what, what's there to debate? Like, I, on, I, I, I uh, yeah. I, on you know, international like women's day. Of, <laughs> it just, it just baffles me. Like what, like what are you talking about when, when you talk about, you want to debate about feminism? Duly noted. This is the time where we thank our second sponsor, Alex, and that is Casper Mattresses. Uh, Casper is sticking it to Big Mattress. They're cutting out the middleman. They're cutting out that big showroom. They're bringing prices down. They are delivering the mattress. You don't need to try out 100 different mattresses. This is the mattress. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. With over 20,000 reviews and an average 4.8 out of 5 stars, it is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Free shipping and returns within Canada and the U.S. You can try it for free for 100 nights. They just ship you a box with a mattress. You try it out for free. If you don't like it, they take it back and pay for everything and refund you everything that you paid. Designed, developed, and assembled in the United States of America, people. Go to casper.com slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand and you'll get $50 off of their shockingly fair price. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, finally, Alex, I want to talk about uh, this sort of ongoing process. I've been discussing it, the conservative leadership race, increasingly this crowded field of candidates. Mm -hmm. How are they going to make themselves noticed? How are they going to take advantage of the headwinds where there is popular support for conservative ideas? They just can't resist 
the alt-right stuff. And uh, Maxime Bernier put out this meme shareable where he was thanking uh, the leader of the Wild Rose Party for endorsing him. And he did this kind of crappy Photoshop mashup of uh, the Matrix, take the red pill. And, uh, you know, to the uninitiated, if you take the red pill, the scales fall from your eyes and you see the truth of the Matrix. Or you take the blue pill and you can be uh, another sheeple who's just going through their day clouded by ignorance. And anyhow, uh, the, the, the Matrix thing is not the value of this these days. The, the, the red pill, of course, it's the name of a documentary. And that documentary is named after a, uh, a Reddit community. And it's all about if you take the red pill, you see the truth. That's an MRA thing. Okay, and Bernier is claiming he had no idea, right? This this had nothing to do with MRAs. He was just referencing the Matrix. It's such bullshit. Do you buy for a second? I mean, I guess, you know, you, look, you're a reporter, and because we can't say with absolute 100% certainty that he was aware of this, you're not going to say, of course, he knew. So are you? Are you, Alex? Can you say that? I, I I am a reporter and I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, I don't know his campaign team's in, intention or motivation or, you know, knowledge of this issue uh, before they posted that. I guess it could be just an extremely, you know, curious coincidence that they picked a scene from an 18-year-old sci-fi movie that just happens to be a rallying cry for the darkest and saddest corners of the internet. Um <laughs> But generally, I would say that, that there's something to that, that certain conservative leadership candidates are uh, courting what some have called a populist uh, sort of demographic, a populist voting block, you know, people who frequently get their news from internet sources, not the mainstream media, uh, who attend Ezra Levant's rallies, that sort of thing. I think that, that it's, it's completely fair to say that, that conservative leadership campaigns are very wary um, of the power of of that sort of bullhorn from that community. One thing that seems kind of odd to me about this is that, you know, the modern conservative party, which is only, you know, 13, 14 years old, you know, younger than the Matrix even, has been, you know, for the past decade, a, a big tent party. You know, you had social conservatives, you have red Tories, you have reformers, progressive conservatives, but sort of most importantly, they courted new Canadians, immigrants. Jason Kenney, uh, you know, the former immigration minister, uh, one of Harper's, you know, right-hand men, uh, now running for the leadership of the progressive conservatives in Alberta, he relentlessly sought votes of from first-generation Canadian immigrants, uh, you know, communities that maybe, you know, voted liberal in the past, that maybe were a little bit more inward-facing than engaging in the, the broader political culture of this country. Because according to him, you know, both both he and Stephen Harper knew that that some of those communities had small C conservative values. So, you know, that was widely credited as winning Mr. Harper his majority in, in 2011. So I guess it's just a little bit, I don't know, a discordant maybe to see that the conservative leadership candidates sort of move away from that blueprint in, in sort of seeking this sort of more fringe element uh, of the party, um, you know, so soon after the conservatives were the dominant force in Canadian politics for a decade. The other thing I would say about this is, I, I think if I'm a conservative party member right now, I'm looking at what happened in the United States in 2015, 2016, where a fringe element of the Republican Party ended up devouring the establishment whole. You know, so if I'm a Conservative Party member, I think I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, 
is that is that where we're going and is that what I want from our party uh is that you know going to sit well with me and you know what 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 possible outcomes could it be would it would it lead to you know a long time in the opposition benches uh you know is that going to get us government it did in the United States but is it is the same sort of you know scenarios present in the Canadian electorate uh, or factors present in the Canadian electorate that were present in the American electorate. I don't know that. I just think that, that that's something that, you know, if, I, if I'm a Conservative Party member looking at the party right now, it's something that I'm very conscious of. Yeah, yeah. Those are good points. I mean, I feel like the big tent that uh, Harper was able to, you know, herd everybody into in this, you know, crazy coalition of different interests and peoples, uh, basically the tent fell apart and the the party got thrown to the wilderness in the last election. So, you know, there's some common sense in like the, the, the rational, mild Canadian way would be like, let's start rebuilding that, people. But we've never really been able to resist a massive media campaign from the states, and just to kind of like coast on the the coattails of uh, such a strong headwind. And and like I've, I've you know, been saying many times, it's just Levant is putting together a huge mailing list. He's putting together a huge political machine. How you could say no to that, especially when you've got that many candidates within the party itself? I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be some soul searching. But uh, in the states, eventually, that fringe voice won out because it was winning. Because it was uh, there was a devil's bargain where they took power over their own principles. Uh, I guess we'll see what plays out here. You know, and, and and just to fully articulate why I think it's just beyond the pale of of any kind of credibility. The context for Bernier is that he is the hero of Reddit, of conservative Reddit. He is the libertarian candidate and has been so for a year or two. And there's just uh, extensive copious stuff on Reddit of, of his fanboys going on and on and on and on about him. Even putting aside the connection between the Wild Rose Party and the movie The Red Pill and the phrase feminism is cancer, that story that bubbled up last week. And then that's, that's linked to this meme that Bernier put out in response to the Wild Rose endorsement. But even putting that aside, it is just simply not believable that Bernier did not know that this was a massive part of Reddit culture that was linked to him online. So I think it's important to call out uh, these dog whistles every time they're blown. I, I, I would just, I mean, that's certainly your opinion, but I would just add that it's interesting for, for me to note that the leader of the Wild Rose Party in Alberta, Brian Jean, has, you know, sort of completely condemned that, you know, feminism is cancer slogan from the, the Campus Wild Rose uh, organization that put it out. So, so even, you know, Brian Jean is not you know, a red Tory. Brian Jean is not a progressive conservative. He's a, he's a conservative from Fort McMurray, Alberta. So I think it's, you know, it's interesting to me to note and, and for your listeners to know that there are people within the conservative party who, who are not identifying this. And it would, I think it would be a disservice to the, the discourse in, in Canada to, to suggest that, that all conservatives are, are okay with this, or this is the perspective of all conservatives. Certainly. And and uh, it's certainly true that, that, that he distanced himself from those comments that were made by campus members of his own party. Alex? Yes, Jesse? That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. And we are on Twitter at Canadaland. Alex, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter less and less but you can find me in the pages of the Toronto Star which you should subscribe to download Star Touch our website is canadalandshow.com <laughs> our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland this program is produced by Russell Gregg it is made available to campus and community radio stations across this country if you like what we do please support us please support us